Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. With the way the music industry operates, this guy's career should have been dead and buried long ago. I mean, no offense, but you know, look at this dude. Even when he was young, he looked dorky. The bad glasses and poor posture and that geeky stare. Yeah, this is a guy that was a computer programmer for a cosmetics company. And in the age of punk, when everyone had mohawks and had safety pins stuck through their clothes and their cheeks, this guy insisted on wearing a sport coat, for God's sake. Yet he's still here. He's still making music. And not only does he have the respect and admiration of two generations of fans, he's also collaborated as an equal with everyone from Paul McCartney to Burt Bacharach. Yeah, from punk to a Beatle to the guy who wrote Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. And then on to a classical string quartet, jazz ensembles, big bands. This guy's even been granted the title of Artist in Residence at UCLA. So how's he do it? I mean, what's the big deal about Elvis Costello? This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Elvis Costello, singing with as much passion as he did back in 1977. Tear off your own head, from his 2002 album, When I Was Cruel. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another one of those ongoing history case studies on a major new rock and alternative figure from the past. Now, if you grew up through the 1970s and 80s, you may already know why Elvis Costello was such a big deal. It's just, you know, one of those unspoken truths that you just kind of take for granted. Or maybe, for whatever reason, you just don't get it. Why does everyone go on about this round Englishman that still insists on releasing records? Well, hopefully this show can provide some perspective. First, though, i got to give you this personal testimonial. Almost every music fan has some kind of epiphany. The moment you realize that you really, really, really love rock. Mine came at exactly three minutes after eight on November 15th, 1978, in what was known as the Playhouse Theater in Winnipeg. I was feeling kind of sorry for myself because every girl I asked to go with me to the concert had turned me down. I was very annoyed that I had wasted $7 on that second ticket. And the lights went down, and Elvis walked on stage. Actually, he kind of stalked on stage like he was mad. He was wearing his powder blue sports coat and had a Fender Stratocaster strung carelessly around his neck. Now, I had never been to a punk show before, so I was a little alarmed when half the audience got up out of their seats and rushed to the front of the stage. Now, in those days, concert security in Winnipeg was often handled by one of the local motorcycle gangs, and they took their job very seriously. So as soon as the kids ran down the aisles, the bikers began bashing them and tossing them away. When Elvis saw this, he stopped singing, looked down from the low stage. He stared at those big, 
burly, long-haired, tattooed bikers and screamed, You pig shits, leave my friends alone. They were so shocked that this English geek in the sport coat would talk to them in such a way that a miraculous thing happened. They stopped their bashing and they let the kids dance. I, I had never seen such a thing. I know it sounds cliched, but it was like a lightning bolt. And from that moment on, I became a fan of all punk and new wave and alternative music. And I can honestly say it was because of that one small event that I'm here today. I recounted this whole episode in greater detail in the introduction to my first book, The Alternative Music Almanac, which came out in 1995. And I got to tell you something, one of my greatest thrills was presenting Elvis with a copy of that book and watching him read that introduction. When he was finished, he looked up at me, smiled, and said, thanks, man. And that was all the validation I needed. Okay, so there's my story. It's all very well and good, but it hardly explains what the big deal is about Elvis Costello. So let's get on with that. You gotta do it to be doing so you're better than to it. I you saying it is alright when you're only in a battle of moves. Spend all your money getting so confident that you never Elvis from his first album, My Aim is True, released for the first time on September 22, 1977, on a fierce little UK label called Stiff Records. A bit of background here. Elvis's real name is Declan McManus. He's the only child of some very musical parents. Mom once worked in a record store owned by Brian Epstein, the first manager of the Beatles. She also managed the record department of the big Selfridges department store on Oxford Street in London. Meanwhile, Dad was a singer in a big band-type dance orchestra. But even with music playing around the house all the time, little Declan had a hard time finding something he liked. By the time he was 15, though, he had become something of a fan of the Grateful Dead. He also was a big fan of the band, that Canadian group, that backed up both Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan. When he left school, he found a series of jobs as a computer operator, wearing a white lab coat and feeding old-fashioned punch cards into a gigantic machine, the legendary IBM 360. One of those jobs was for Elizabeth Arden, the cosmetics company. He also developed severe headaches, probably brought on by the bright fluorescent lights in the computer room, and that's when he started wearing those glasses. Declan's first live performances were as a folk singer in the early 1970s. Then he joined a short-lived group called Flip City. And when that didn't work out, Declan, now calling himself D.P. Costello after an ancient relative, went solo again. So he sent out a bunch of demo tapes, a lot of demo tapes actually, and got rejection letter after rejection letter, until he managed to be the very first person signed to the new Stiff Records. Declan's first album was recorded during weekends, vacation days, and sick days from the computer room at Elizabeth Arden. And here's one of the weirdest true stories in the history of modern rock. At the time, Declan, now dubbed Elvis Costello by stiff boss Jake Riviera, was a solo singer. He didn't have a backing band. So Stiff hired a band called the Shamrocks to appear on the album. Now the real name of the Shamrocks was actually Clover, and they were a bunch of Americans living in London who had some extra time. The only person from Clover that didn't participate in these sessions was the singer, because Elvis was singing. So he just sort of hung around watching. Once the recording sessions wrapped up, Clover went back to the States and changed their name. You may have heard of them. Huey Lewis in the News. That's right, Elvis's backing band on that first album is actually Huey Lewis and the News, minus Huey. Why don't you tell me about the news of the dance? I want to know about my mystery dance. 
That first record, My Aim Is True, really shook things up. Although he came from a folk singer and rhythm and blues background, Elvis found himself lumped into the British punk scene. Not that this was a bad thing. It was just kind of unexpected. But then with Elvis's sneer and anger and geekiness, he just well, fit in fine. And at the time when 99% of punk was coming from groups, Elvis, as the angry singer-songwriter, put him into his own little niche. Now, you got to remember that in 1977, the male singer-songwriter thing was dominated by such lightweights as James Taylor and Cat Stevens. Elvis, of course, was nowhere near that timid and sweet. She's watching the detectives. When it came time to record his second album, Clover was unavailable. Besides, they lacked a certain intensity. That's when Elvis Costello finally formed his own group. The attractions were made up of some music industry vets, and they would join Elvis off and on over the next couple of decades. Elvis's big introduction to North America came on December 17, 1977, and this is another great story. The special musical guest that night on Saturday Night Live was supposed to have been the Sex Pistols. That gig was supposed to have been the start of the Pistols' big North American tour. However, there was a major screw-up when it came to getting visas, and the Pistols were refused entry into the country by U.S. Customs. That left Saturday Night Live scrambling for a musical guest, and the guy who answered the call was Elvis. However, there was a catch. Elvis could have the gig on the condition that he performed his British hit single, which was called Less Than Zero. Under no circumstances can you play that other song, they said. That other song was a track very critical of radio. And since NBC owned a lot of radio stations, no one wanted to risk making the executives at the network angry. Now remember that Saturday Night Live was still a very new show, and everyone lived in fear of being canceled. Elvis said, fine. I understand. He would do as he was told. But then again, this was live television, right? What was anyone going to do if he went back on his promise. The result was one of the great moments in the history of music on TV. And it sounded like this. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. That act of defiance, that act of corporate nose-thumbing, inspired thousands. Elvis dissed the establishment, not only on the hottest TV show of the moment, but on live TV, too. And what were they going to do? Cut him off? By the way, if you ever get to see that performance from December 17, 1977, take a look at the T-shirt worn by drummer Pete Thomas. It says, thanks, Malk, as in, thanks, Malcolm McLaren, for screwing up with the Sex Pistols visas, allowing us to be here instead of you. Back with more of What's the Big Deal About Elvis Costello, right after this. Elvis Costello emerged from the 1970s as one of the world's most interesting singer-songwriters. I mean, this was a guy dripping with attitude. And he seemed to have so much to say. Elvis was on a songwriting tear, and a tear that basically continues to this day. 
This is actually one of the knocks against Elvis Costello. He puts out too much music. In an era when we're lucky to get one album every three years from our favorite performers, Elvis is considered to be too prolific. Elvis released a new album every year between 1977 and 1986. New songs and new albums came faster than his labels can handle them. Elvis just didn't give the record company enough time to promote and market this music. As soon as the marketing department had something in place, Elvis was off on the next project. And here's a hint. Never annoy the marketing department. They will just get bored and start to ignore you. The material also came faster than the music press could digest it. The reviews were almost uniformly positive, but because there was always something new in the pipeline, the albums and the singles were pushed along faster than they should have been. Take, for example, Elvis's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh albums. Armed Forces from 1979, Get Happy from 1980, Almost Blue from 1981, Imperial Bedroom from 1982, and Punch the Clock from 1983. It's a lot of new material in a very short period. There just wasn't any time to savor the records. A glut of material resulted in Elvis's worth and equity being diluted, even amongst diehard fans. Oh, look, Elvis has another record. Okay, big deal. Compounding matters was that Elvis's musical style was evolving at warp speed. He went from the angry young punk in 77 and 78 to a more mature pop songwriter by 1982. And as the 80s progressed, Elvis branched off into even more styles and attitudes. Where was the angry, geeky guy with the glasses that had such an impact in the 1970s? He's now writing pop songs? No, wait, wait, he's gone country. Oh, look at that. He's playing a gig at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Oh, hang on, that sounds sort of punk. No, no, I'm sorry, he's, he's gone back to pop again. Just, oh, wait, is he working with the attractions again? G- good! Wait, that's, that's Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates singing a duet with Elvis on that song, isn't it? So you see the problem. In fact, although he released lots of albums, Elvis says he made pretty much zero on all of them. The only place where he gets money is from publishing. For example, if Pump It Up gets played somewhere in public, Elvis gets a piece of the action. But if this year's model sells another copy, chances are he gets bupkis. So out of all these records from the 1980s, there was only one significant hit in North America. And here it is. From Punch the Clock, a top 40 North American single called Every Day I Write the Book. By the middle 80s, Elvis was working as a solo artist in the studio and only used the attractions for live gigs. But then in 1986, there was a reunion. The album was called Blood and Chocolate. And this was the closest thing to old school Elvis fans had heard in a long, long time. This album also contained the longest song in the Elvis catalog. It's called I Want You. I want you. I woke up in one of was crying I want you You said young man I do believe you're dying After 1986, Elvis Costello began to slow down. There was a three-year break between Blood and Chocolate and a record called Spike. By this time, Elvis had established himself as one of the most influential singer-songwriters in the world, amongst other singer-songwriters. That's a very important point. This is a pretty elite club featuring many members who aren't all that well-known to the general public, but very well-known to the songwriting community. And this is one of the biggest deals about Elvis Costello. He had become an artist's artist, someone other performers look to for guidance and inspiration. 
leading by example, Elvis showed how it was possible for songwriters to develop their craft and how to grow as artists. Now, trust me, Elvis may have not sold a lot of records, but his stature with other musicians was golden. Elvis is so well regarded that one of the most successful songwriters in the world chose to work with him. A Beatle, no less. From 1989, in a record called Spike, here's a song that features Paul McCartney. Elvis Costello with his pal Paul McCartney from 1989. Now, let me tell you something. If a Beatle agrees to work with you on an album, then you got to be something special. Then, in the 1990s, Elvis collaborated with Burt Bacharach, a guy who wrote some of the biggest easy-listening pop hits of the 1970s. It was a whole album entitled Painted from Memory from 1998. It's a fabulous pop standards album. Sure, some of Bacharach's stuff is considered schmaltzy by today's standards, but as a songwriter, this guy's a craftsman. Just ask Noel Gallagher of Oasis what he thinks of Burt Bacharach. And there's more. And it's coming up next as we continue with What's the Big Deal About Elvis Costello? Okay, we've established that Elvis Costello is a highly respected singer-songwriter, especially amongst his peers. His work has spurred other artists to develop their craft, and he is also led by example when it comes to experimenting with songwriting. The reason Elvis is still around is that he knew the angry young punk thing had a limited shelf life. It was either grow and evolve or die. Or worse, you end up becoming a parody of yourself. And because Elvis knows that he has serious vocal limitations, he's always known that he's needed to stretch his limits as a musician if he was going to keep doing this for a living. This is why he chose to work with Burt Bacharach on a decidedly non-rock project. That's why he scored a couple of shows for British television, including a production of the Dickens classic Oliver Twist. That's why he's worked with movie soundtracks. That's why Elvis recorded what he calls a song sequence for strings and voice with a classical string outfit called the Brodsky Quartet. And that's why he became a respected musicologist, writing articles for magazines as big as Vanity Fair. Seriously, name another guy with this much stuff on his resume, in addition to two dozen albums over 25 years. Sure, there have been some failures and missteps, but that's what happens when you have the guts to experiment. Some things work, others don't. What matters is that you learn and keep moving forward. And Elvis is a shining example of that. Here's another thing about Elvis Costello that gets overlooked. He also deserves credit for the whole ska revival that began in the late 1970s and continues to today. Seriously, without Elvis, the ska thing might never have taken off the way it did. And this alone makes him a big deal in the history of music. Now, what are you talking about, you're probably saying? Other than watching the detectives, Elvis wasn't into ska. Oh, yeah? Look at the credits on that first album from The Specials on the two-tone label. Who produced it? Who showed this raw, untamed band from Coventry how to capture their energy on tape? And did this album kick the whole ska revival into gear in 1979? You bet it did. And who was at the controls? Elvis Costello. The 
the specials from 1979 with Elvis Costello in the control room in the studio. And the specials weren't the only band to benefit from his touch. Just ask any fan of the Pogues how Elvis helped produce some of their early material. Because Elvis has sort of always, you know, just been there, the time has kind of slipped by. So think of it. How many survivors from the 1970s punk scene are A, not only making records, but B, still considered relevant, C, still accorded major coverage in the mainstream media, D, admired, if not revered, by some of the best songwriters in the world, and E, still be able to be booked into large theaters like the Molson Amphitheater in Toronto? Any other names come to mind? Not many, probably. And when you take all these accomplishments over this many years and add everything up, you got to be impressed. That's the big deal about Elvis Costello. Elvis Costello is one of those performers that could easily become the subject of a Ph.D. dissertation. In fact, he probably has. His career has been so long and so varied that you could almost do a Beatles-length documentary on the guy. If you're a fan and you want more, the best biography out there is called, appropriately, Elvis Costello, a biography by Tony Clayton Lee. And if you'd like to go to the web, try LuckyGoon.com. This is the home of the Train Spotter's Guide to Elvis Costello. It will lead you in all directions at once. By the way, what do you suppose it says on Elvis's passport these days? Well, he's still officially Declan McManus for international travel. However, if you look at his driver's license, it reads Elvis Costello. Just thought I'd throw that in. Technical production for this show is by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.